Thank you, Daniel. Good morning, everyone. And good morning to those who are watching online. I know of uh, a few people who are not feeling well today and chose to stay home and uh, hope they're getting better. Uh, But it's good to see you here this morning. Uh, We're continuing our series this morning uh, called Misfits in Scripture. Uh, And if you haven't been here the last two weeks, uh, or you haven't tuned in online or caught up on YouTube, you may be wondering what in the world our series is actually about, Uh, misfits. And so what we are trying to discover and to see uh, over the next couple of months, actually, is how the misfits that we find in Scripture, the oddballs, the square peg trying to fit in a round hole, individuals of scripture, the black sheep, the ostracized, the ordinary, the seemingly unqualified, uh, unexpected individuals of scripture are used by God to change the world. How these individuals in scripture encounter God, God transforms them and uses them to be a a facilitator of change in other people's lives. And so if you've been tracking with us, a couple of weeks ago we began the series and I looked at Moses. uh, And uh, we saw Moses standing before a burning bush and uh, being called by God to this great act of service. But Moses felt he was unqualified. And we looked at all the different excuses that Moses had, which in his mind made him not a good candidate for the job that God had for him. Uh, But we saw that God was still going to use Moses, despite what Moses thought, despite Moses' excuses. And last week, Al led us through the story of Gideon. Uh, Gideon, who saw himself as timid and fearful and not up to the task, and yet God was going to use Gideon to do a great and mighty work. And so after even just two weeks, I think you've got the idea that if we look at Scripture, we're going to find misfits that are used by God. How God uses them to move his kingdom forward, uh, to impact the world, to turn the world upside down, to progress the gospel message uh, and and the message of the kingdom through But a question that I wondered if some people were asking uh, after I spoke and after Al spoke uh, was this. Is it true for today? Does God still use anybody, misfits, to do great works for his kingdom? Because we see the individuals in scripture. But what about Today, How can we know that the premise of our very series is actually true uh, for today? And as I was thinking about the question, my mind went back to a mountaintop experience for me. Uh, And that was a a trip to Los Angeles. Alice and I were leaders uh, with some other uh, young adults leading a group of teens from Pickering. Uh, It's a mountaintop experience for me. And you probably know that because I've shared this story uh, and and highlights of of our mission trip 
numerous times uh, over the years. And I think of Peter uh, in, uh, I believe it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about his mountaintop experience, where, where he saw Jesus glorified, the, the transfiguration uh, of Jesus. And he, and he says that experience gave him such encouragement and confidence that what he believed to be true was true. And I'm sure if you hung around Peter, he told you about that mountaintop experience over and over again. So that's my justification. If you go, I think I've heard Brent tell that story before, uh, because it's an experience in my life that I go back to many, many times for encouragement and for confidence and to be reminded of the lessons that God taught me while we were down in the inner city uh, of Los Angeles. And when we went to Los Angeles, there was two burning questions in my mind. And the first question is really related to what I've just been talking about. The question was, could God actually use a group of middle-class white teenagers and young adults from Pickering, Ajax, Ontario, to have any kind of impact in the inner city of Los Angeles? What could God do with us? What qualified us to be used by God? I can think of all sorts of reasons and excuses why God wouldn't be able to use us. I couldn't think of any outstanding uh, attribute or, or characteristic of our group that made me think, wow, we're going to go down there and we're going to rock inner city Los Angeles. What in the world were we thinking? But I soon discovered what God was thinking. And God was going to teach me a very important lesson over and over again. And I could spend the rest of the morning just listing examples of stories of how God used individuals in our youth group and how God used leaders to make an impact, to make a change in other people's lives, to actually have an impact in the inner city of Los Angeles. I think of Chris, one of our young people, uh, who was very, very fair-skinned. And going into the inner city of Los Angeles, where we were going to be surrounded, predominantly where we went by black people, who probably had a real great distrust for white people. And yet I saw uh, God use Chris specifically to just have all these young children. One specifically, it was a little boy and he only had one leg. And who would not leave Chris alone and hugged him and, and just held on to his shirt tail and followed him around uh, everywhere. And I think of another uh, girl in our youth group named Karen, who's the most timid girl. We actually were concerned about her coming on the trip with us. And we went to this uh, coffee house uh, one evening and it was a terrifying experience. I never felt evil surrounding me as much as I did at that coffee house. And here's this poor Karen, timid. You think Gideon felt he was timid. She was timid. And yet God used her probably more than anyone else that night as she just spoke peace and comfort into this life of a wife and daughter who'd showed up to this coffee house. I remember Allison at a soup kitchen. It was a breakfast mission. And she she was talking to this, this man. And I remember one of the people that worked at this breakfast mission said, that person never talks to anybody. And here's Allison, who at the time was a fairly new Christian, uh, coming from the a small 
hamlet of the Ottawa Valley uh, and here in the inner city, making a connection uh, with this person. And on and on, I could just fill you with all these experiences where God was just, I think he was laughing, showing me, Brent, here's the answer to your burning question. Nothing can prevent anyone from being used by me. And if they're willing, I can use them to make an impact for my kingdom. So that was the answer to my first burning question. But I had this other burning question, and it was much more personal, and it was much bigger of a question. Because the first question, I guess if we went down there and we didn't have any impact, well, at least we had a 10-day holiday to Los Angeles, and we'd have something to talk about. But the second burning question, the bigger question to me was this, can God really change anyone? Even the most vile of sinner. And I tell you, when we went to the inner city of Los Angeles, we saw sin to the fullest. We saw people fully devoted to sinful lifestyles. We saw all the consequences of that full devotion to the sinful lifestyle. Could God save somebody like that? And not just save them. Could God transform them to the point that he could use them to make an impact for his kingdom? Do we believe? Do you believe that God really can save anyone? Is his grace big enough for everyone? Or anyone? And then one step further... Can God really change the most vilest of sinner to the point that he can use them in a mighty way for his kingdom? That was the burning question that I went to Los Angeles with. And again, time and time again, God was going to show me the answer to the question. And I've shared this story for sure with you before, but I remember we were at a soup kitchen right down uh, in uh, the inner city of Los Angeles. It was huge. And they literally took people off the street. People that we walked by along the sidewalks and there'd be people leaving, living in cardboard boxes and they were totally out of their mind and involved in things that I didn't even understand. And they brought them into this soup kitchen. Uh, and the goal was obviously to feed them and to clothe them and to bathe them, to teach them about Jesus and to see them embark on, on the faith journey. And so we were toured through this place by this lady and she stopped us at all these different parts of the soup kitchen. And, and we got to see people who were in process that had lived on the street, but who are now, you know, working in the kitchen, washing dishes, sorting out clothes, doing all these jobs. And I thought, okay, God, you're showing me that, yes, you can save anyone. And, you know, these people were doing, you know, menial jobs, but, you know, you're using them. And so that's probably a lesson that I should have learned more of in itself, but, but that wasn't the main point. Probably the highlight of my trip was what happened next. We were in a, a room such like our sanctuary, uh, and we were just finishing debriefing on this experience, and this lady who had led us through, who was wearing a blouse and a, a skirt, uh, fielded questions from our group. And so there was a bunch of different questions. I can't, can't remember any of the questions or any of the answers except for this one question. One of our youth had the boldness to ask her, what is a person like you 
doing in a place like this? And I went, aha, God, here's my burning question. And you're going to tell me something here. And she says, the reason I'm here is because I used to live out there. I used to live in a cardboard box, selling my body so I could pay for the drugs I used and to somehow raise her daughter on the streets of Los Angeles. And someone from in here reached out to me and introduced me to Jesus. And and here she was. And that blew my mind. And I realized that's the answer to my burning question. God can take anyone and transform their life and use them in a great and mighty way for the kingdom. And this morning, I want to introduce you to someone. Maybe you've heard her story many times before. But I want to introduce you to someone from Scripture who can really relate to this premise that God can save and transform and use anyone, regardless of how big a misfit, how dark a black sheep, how heavy the baggage of sin from their life they bring, that God can save and transform and use them in a mighty way for their kingdom. And the individual is Rahab. And I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. As as we just go through the account of Rahab's story uh, that begins in in, in Joshua chapter 2, and and we're going to just slowly walk through the chapter with some commentary, uh, and and then uh, we'll uh, get to... uh, the um, couple of points I want to make at the end of, of application and, and some lessons that we can learn uh, from her life. Uh, Joshua 2, chapter 1, we're introduced to Rahab. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. That's the introduction to Rahab. The spies came across Rahab, the prostitute. Your Bible may say Rahab, the harlot. The Bible does nothing to hide Rahab's identity. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a harlot, a woman of the night, and a bunch of other things that may come to your mind in the way to describe someone who is occupied uh, in, the, uh, in the trade that Rahab was involved in. If you'd met Rahab, you probably would have written her off as a hopeless case when it came to any kind of a relationship with God. Like the rest of Jericho, Rahab was a sinful and immoral woman living in a sinful and immoral Place. In fact, Jericho was fanatically devoted to everything that God hated. We had no reason to believe that Rahab wasn't participating in all that was going on in Jericho. For whatever reason she was in prostitution, we don't know. She was personally uh, benefiting financially uh, from what she did. 
I would assume that Rahab didn't really feel that she had any reason to hold any hope for her life. Jericho was so immoral and sinful that they were on the brink of judgment. And I'm sure that Rahab felt that there was no reason why she should be one to escape the consequences and the judgment uh, of her people's sin. We don't see any redeeming qualities in, in Rahab when we first meet her that would suggest that God would have any interest in her, that God would want to use her, let alone have anything to do with her. And yet by the time we get to the end of our text, Rahab the prostitute becomes Rahab the child of God. And despite the fact that we can't find any redeeming qualities from a human standpoint, as when we're introduced in verse 1 to Rahab, by the time we get into the New Testament, we discover that Rahab the prostitute who becomes a child of God, her name is included in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame of Faith list. That's why I had Daniel read Hebrews 11 this morning, uh, some of the verses. And Hebrews 11, is, it's a very well-known passage, and we read all these heroes of our faith, and we'll probably hear of some of these people as we go through this series. And we see this person and that person. Yeah, that's a hero of my faith. That's a hero of the faith. And we go through the list, and then all of a sudden, Rahab the prostitute is listed. How in the world did her name get included in the list? Maybe it's a mistake. Daniel kept reading on and said, the author said, I don't have time to tell you about David, Gideon, but you had time to explain Rahab, the prostitute, to us? The fact that her name is included in the list of Hebrews 11, Hall of Fame of Faith, tells us that her story is remarkable. But even more so, her God, our God, and his grace and mercy, his transforming power is remarkable. Uh, Ray Pritchard says that Rahab not only stands as a beacon of hope to the broken, hurting, bruised, fallen men and women everywhere who look in the mirror and feel there is no hope for me. But as well, as a name that's included in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame, this cloud of witnesses that I believe we are to look to as examples and to glean lessons from their life. Rahab holds lessons for us that we can glean from. What is it that qualified her to be a hero of the faith? Rahab the prostitute who becomes Rahab the child of God. What is it that we can learn from her life? And we're going to turn to that question at the end. But let's just quickly run through the story. I could assume that many of you know the story. It's a Sunday school story. They kind of, you know, squelch the prostitute part, uh, probably in Sunday school. But I don't think VeggieTales really mentioned that, uh, her occupation. But the Bible, as I said, makes it quite clear what her occupation was. And so the story actually begins before Joshua 2. Uh, probably about... Um, 500 years earlier, Abraham is promised that he's going to establish his descendants in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And uh, now it's time to claim that promise. 
Moses has died. Joshua is now in charge. The Israelites are camped on the east side of the Jordan, and it's time to claim the land. Only problem is the land isn't just empty. It's already settled. Uh, So there's going to be warfare, uh, and there's going to be conquest. And so in verse 1, we discover that the Israelites are, well, we don't discover this, but we know they're about seven miles east of the Jordan. And about seven miles west of them, on the other side of the Jordan, almost in a straight line, is Jericho. And so it says that Joshua sends two spies to spy out Jericho. And we may ask, well, why Jericho? Well, there's some strategic reasons. Jericho kind of stood in the way to conquering and getting to the the west part of the promised land. Jericho stood as a fortified fort uh, blocking the way. Uh, And it was surrounded by two walls. Uh, One wall and then around that wall was another wall. And in between the walls, there was people's houses. and, And that's actually where Rahab's house was. Uh, And so for the Israelites to conquer Jericho, not only was it strategic, not only was it necessary so that they could continue westward, but for them to defeat Jericho, that formidable opponent, would send a message to the rest of the inhabitants of the promised land. That the Israelites, their nation, their army, their God was one to be contended with. I think God had reasons why the Israelites were going to go to Jericho first. And we're going to see that as we go through the story. And so Jericho, or sorry, Joshua, he, he learned from the Israelites' mistake when they sent 12 spies. And two of them, which he was one of them, came back with a positive report about what would happen if they went into Jericho. And 10 of them came back and, uh, with a negative report. And everyone listened to the 10 and... So that's why it's taken so long and everyone's had to die off before they can finally cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. So Joshua is smart and he says, well, I'm just going to send two spies secretly. They're going to go, they're going to, they're going to take a look at what's going on in Jericho and they're going to come back and report to me. And so in verse one, we're told that the two spies go into Jericho and they go to the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Why go to Rahab's? It is quite interesting to, to look at the different reasons the Bible scholars and, and Bible critics give for that question. You know, maybe they got lost. Uh, maybe um, they met Rahab out on the street and, and that's how they ended up in her place. Uh, probably it was a very strategic place for them to go to go to a place where it's probably not going to raise a whole bunch of suspicion that a couple of guys have walked into a prostitute's home. Um, Rahab was a very, her place was a very strategic location, uh, had a great view of the city. And obviously, uh, if you know the story, uh, had a great way to escape because her window looked out the back wall of the city. And again, I think the real reason they went to Rahab's from a godly perspective is that God was, God himself was orchestrating the events. God knew with the spies needed to hear, but he also knew the desire uh, of Rahab's heart to know God and to put her trust in him and to serve him. And so God orchestrates the events that the spies uh, end up uh, in Rahab's home. 
And so we continue on in, uh, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 2. It says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the man who came to you, men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the news of the spies coming into Jericho has reached the king. Uh, he reaches out to Rahab. So obviously he knows who Rahab is and where she lives and says, look, bring out those two men. That's your patriotic duty. To not do so would be treason, punishable by death. And the story continues. Verse four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that led to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Uh, and so Rahab doesn't sell out the spies. She hides them. She deceives the king. She sells uh, and sends the um, soldiers on a wild goose chase and, and off they go and uh, delivers the two spies uh, from the people who are looking for them. Uh, and then verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on earth below. Rahab tells the spies exactly what they've come to find out, what they needed to hear. The people of Jericho are terrified. Their hearts have melted. They've heard of what the God of the Israelites have done in and through the Israelite people, and they are terrified. And, and Rahab gives this beautiful confession of faith. And as far as Rahab's concerned, the victory of God is already a done deal. The story continues in verse 12. Rahab wants to strike a deal. She's been kind to the spies, and now she's looking for some kindness back. She has uh, offered deliverance to the spies. Now she's looking for deliverance back. Uh, and in verse 12, it says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord 
in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And as she tied the scarlet cord, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so they strike a deal. Rahab is to not say anything, and she's also to tie the scarlet cord to her window, kind of like the Passover in the Exodus. Uh, and, and when the time of judgment came on Jericho, when they saw the scarlet cord hanging out of Rahab's window, she would be spared, her and all of her family and all that belonged to them that would be there. And if we continued through Joshua up to chapter 6, we would see that the real famous part of this story, when the Israelites march one time, six days in a row, around the walls of Jericho, and then on the seventh day, they march seven times. And then the trumpet sounds and the people yell and the walls of Jericho come crashing down and Jericho is totally annihilated except for Rahab and her family because she faithfully tied that scarlet cord to her window and, and Rahab uh, and her family become part of the Israelite nation and move on uh, with them. And, we, and we'll come across Rahab a little bit later uh, in the Bible uh, story. So the question I've asked, because it's uh, 10 to 11 and I don't want to take too long. What can we learn from Rahab's example? What qualified Rahab to be considered a hero of the faith? And the first thing I would suggest is this. Rahab, despite all the excuses and obstacles and temptations that were before her, chooses God. She sells herself out to God. She's all in. The fact that many people try to minimize Rahab's occupation really minimizes us and causes us to miss out on the tension that Rahab would have faced in making a decision for God. If there was anyone who had reason to not choose God from a human perspective or to prolong her decision to choose God, it's Rahab. She was a sinful woman living in a sinful place. She wasn't really the ideal candidate for what God was going to use her for. As I said, we probably would have written her off, possibly. For her to choose God, she would be turning her back on everything. Her occupation, all of her social network, all of the people. 
If she chose God, it didn't change the fact that she was surrounded by the pressures and the temptations of the land that she found herself living in. She was surrounded by it. No one else believed in God. No one else had chosen God. I already told you, they were fanatically devoted to everything that God hated. And if we had the time to go through some of the characteristics of what life in Jericho was like, I think you'd be horrified. And that was the context in which Rahab had to choose or not choose whether she was going to commit herself to God. And the other thing is there was no indication to Rahab that what was going to happen to Jericho was going to happen anytime soon. It could be the next day, but it could be five years from now when judgment was going to come. So given the fact that she really wasn't an ideal candidate and she was going to have to turn her back on everything and it meant uh, that she's going to be living with all these pressures and temptations and some of the things... You know, sin for a season, like maybe some of the things that were enjoyable. She was going to have to turn her back on all those things and she was going to be faced by all those pressures. Maybe she should prolong the decision to choose God. So that's the tension on the one hand, but then on the other hand is the fact of all these things that she's heard and she's come to believe to be true about God. And here she's confronted by these two faithful servants of God. And so she's got the tension on the one side, not choose God or not to choose God yet. And then on this side, to choose God. In verse 12, it says, now then. And commentators say that, that, that just shows us that Rahab has made her choice. She chooses God. Despite the fact that no one else in Jericho was going to choose God, she she chose God. And she gives us this beautiful declaration, profession of faith in verses 8 through 11. She she tells us that, that she has faith in the power of God. That she knows that what has happened in and through the Hebrew people, the Israelites, is because of Almighty God. She shares the fact that she has faith that the God of the Hebrews is the one true God. Not just one of many gods, not a false God, but He is the one true God. And the other thing that she shares in her statement of faith, her confession of faith, is that she has full faith that judgment is coming. And that deliverance is only available for those who align themselves with the one true God. And so she chooses God. Despite all the excuses and obstacles and temptations that could have kept her from choosing God, she chose God. When nobody else around her was going to choose God, she chose God. And the question that's got to be asked, what is holding you back from choosing God? And that sounds like a gospel message kind of question. 
And I guess I could assume that maybe there's someone in this room that has never made a profession of faith, has never given their life to Jesus. Maybe someone's watching online or will watch this down the road online and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so the question we ask is, what's holding you back from choosing God? What are the temptations? What are the pressures? What are the obstacles? Do you think that you're not an ideal candidate? Do you write yourself off like many would have probably written Rahab off? Is turning your back on the things that you've come to love or depend upon or you don't think you can live without, has that kept you from choosing God? And so, yes, it is a gospel message kind of question, but I think it's also a question for the majority, maybe all of us who are in this room and maybe all of us that are watching this morning. What's holding you back from choosing to live a sold-out life for God? Is it the baggage of your past and you don't think God really needs you to be radically sold out to Him? Are there pressures, temptations, obstacles, favorite sins that keep you from committing yourself fully to God? Is it the pressures of living in a place like this that isn't very friendly towards the Christian faith? Is that what keeps you from from offering your entire self to God? Do you think you just got time? I'll, I'll commit myself fully a little while from now, but in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy what the world has to offer. And Rahab's Example, Rahab herself would tell you, choose God. Choose God fully. Because deliverance and joy and peace and abundant living comes from being aligned and to being committed fully to God. And for us on this side of the cross, being committed to God through the person and work of Jesus. So what makes Rahab a herald of the faith? Well, first of all, she chose God. Despite all the reasons why she could have said no, she still chose God. And then the second and the, the final reason that, I, that uh, we could consider or qualifies Rahab to be a hero of the faith is that Rahab courageously put her faith into action. Now, don't get me wrong. Rahab did not become a child of God because she hid the spies. She became a child of God because of her belief and her declaration of faith in God. But her faith had teeth. It was easy to see. Rahab wanted to demonstrate that her faith was real. And again, it's so easy to skim through the story or to watch the VeggieTale version like I've alluded to and miss out on how dangerous it was for Rahab to do what she did. How dangerous it was for Rahab to put her faith into action. I think of what Rahab did and I think, well, what would I have done if it was me and the spies had come to me? Would I have sold them out? Would I have told them, no, no, you got to go. I don't want to get in trouble. Would I have said, you can stay, but I'm leaving? Would I have gone up on the roof and said, move over, I'm hiding with you? Would I beg them to take me with them? Would I have escaped when they escaped? Would I have 
holed up inside my home once they left and just kind of waited till things passed or until they finally came to defeat Jericho? Would I just try to go and assimilate myself with the people of Jericho so that people didn't suspect anything was different? Would I have tied a scarlet cord in my window? Like, think about that. A scarlet cord hanging in your window. Like, that would bring a little bit of attention. But I know that it had to be seen so that judgment would pass by. So maybe I'd just get one of those little ribbons. A little red ribbon and I'd tie it to my window. But what does Rahab do? She deceives the king, sends the soldiers on the wild goose hunt. She hides the spies. She helps them escape. She ties the scarlet cord to her window and she goes out and evangelizes her family. And why? Why did Rahab choose courageously to put her faith into action? I believe it's because she realized that she was no different than those two spies. That she was now living out her new faith in enemy territory. And that she was willing to be used by God, however God would use her. And that she realized that in the interim, she could make a difference for the kingdom before judgment came. And the question I ask us is what are we doing with our faith and action in the interim before judgment comes? Because we're no different than those two spies ourselves. We're living out our faith in enemy territory. We live in a, we live in a world that's not, as I said, not friendly to the Christian faith. Uh, that will ridicule us, will re- reject us, will make fun of us. What are we doing with our faith? You know, it's interesting in, in, in her confession of faith that Rahab admits that the one thing that caused her to stand up and take notice of God was what she saw God doing in and through the Israelites, what she saw and what she had heard. And I wonder what people see in us. What kind of testimony our faith in action is having. Because I'm truly convinced that there's two ways that you can make people take notice of your profession of faith. There are those who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ and yet live no different than the people around them. And yes, the people around you will stand up and take notice, but actually it's more like they'll lean back and scratch their head and take notice because they don't get it. Because all we're doing is confusing them. But the way that we get caused the people around us who are watching us to stand up and take notice when it's very evident that the grace and the glory and the mercy and the love and the kindness of God is at work in our lives. People will stand up and take notice. And so why do we look to Rahab as a hero of the faith? Because she courageously, regardless of the cost, put her faith into action. Rahab is a great example that nothing need prevent anyone from being used in a mighty way for God. It's interesting, after this account in Joshua, Rahab kind of fades off into the background. We don't hear of her anymore in the Old Testament. 
But then we come to Matthew and his genealogy where he's tracing the royal line uh, of Jesus. And we discover that Rahab is actually the great, great, can't remember if it's great, 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 or great, great grandmother of King David. Her name appears in the genealogy of Matthew. Rahab the prostitute is in the royal line genealogy that brings us to Jesus Christ. And then we don't hear of her again until we come to Hebrews, where the author is lifting up for, the, for us these heroes of the faith, for us to be encouraged by, because they are the great cloud of witnesses. And there in that list is Rahab. Why? Because nothing need prevent anyone from being used mightily by God.